Have you ever wanted to discover what's missing in your life? Metaphysics is available to all and is part of your life even if you don't know it. Welcome to Metaphysics, a view through the veil with Barb Crowley. Together we'll explore the mysteries behind metaphysics and how to use it to have a deeper understanding and advantage in life. And now here's your host, Barb Crowley. Hi, this is Barb Crowley and welcome to Metaphysics, a view through the veil. Today we're talking talking to Dr. Friedman Schaub. Um, He is a physician, researcher, personal development coach, and the author of award-winning book, The Fear and Anxiety Solution, which is what we all need right now. His research and advice have been featured in many publications. He is the host of the Empowerment Solutions podcast and lives between Seattle, Washington and the south of France. He has just told me that he's mostly south of France, which I guess is his way of taking care of that anxiety. (laughs) Anxiety in the United States, and I guess in the world, um, we, uh, we have all become so anxious and so really upset and powerless. But before I get into it, welcome to the show. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And thank much. you for being here. Thank you for yes. being here. How did you get from being a physician and a molecular biologist to into anxiety and powerlessness? Was it happening to you? Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, it was something, I mean, especially anxiety and powerlessness is how I grew up. I mean, I did grow up in a household where both parents were anxious and where I was often thrown into the powerlessness of seeing mom and dad fight. And my job was to somehow be the mediator, the peacemaker. And as a child, that didn't always work really that well. As a child, you don't necessarily have always the power to make them listen or make them stop. And so there was powerlessness. And then there was, you know, a lot of what my parents were worried about were finances. I had no power over their finances, but it got worse, you know, like World War Three was coming any day now. This was at a time where there was in the Middle East some uh, conflict and uh, they were absolutely freaked out because they both were children from the Second World War. So the second, Third World War was just something of you know, an inevitable event that they believed in. And that made me feel powerless too, of course. And, mm-hmm. and I developed all these symptoms of panic attacks. I had anxiety just on a daily basis, but I also had OCD where I had this magical thinking of if I do something, everything's going to be fine, like straightening carpets if I don't do it bad things going to happen. So I knew anxiety very well. And the anxiety went then, you know, it morphs anxiety. It's not always the same. My anxiety went then into the performance anxiety because I knew only if I have straight A's and I'm the best in class, I'm going to get love and attention. And so that continued then into my medical career and uh, beyond. And at some point I realized, you know, whatever I'm doing to make the anxiety go away is not working whether it's like just you know always trying to perform and outperform myself while well, you get a little pat on the back oh good job 
but it doesn't make the anxiety go away, right? I mean, you still feel insecure, not good enough, or I was self-medicating and the doctors have all this access to wonderful things like beta blockers. And so that didn't really make the anxiety go away. Alcohol didn't make the anxiety go away. So I had to find a way to understand that the anxiety is not going anywhere with the methods I'm using. And so one day I found you myself. Know, before we go, before uh -huh. we go there, I want to ask a question now. Sure. How much of it is chemical based, and how much of it is learned? Or well, let me ask you which is the chicken, which is the egg. What comes first? Because it's the same thing. You know, we can find in our brain chemical changes, absolutely, as a result of anxiety. But do the chemical changes? create the anxiety or are they symptom of the anxiety and what i believe is from all that i have uh, experienced with my clients and myself is even if you change your brain chemistry through medication you're not changing how you see the world you're not changing how you think you're not changing all the deeper wounds and traumas that have created the anxiety in the first place so what you're changing is maybe that you're not stuck in the emotion as much, but you still have to do the work. You still have to dig in deeper and find out what does the anxiety actually mean? Where does it come from? Why did I have anxiety, like learned anxiety, like events of the past, all those kind of things. But what I was about so to the, say is just that I, oh, sorry. So, so the, you know, I and my friends will say, oh, you got born with the worry gene. You know, mm -hmm. that you came into life with this with not trusting life with the anxious thing or you mentioned ocd which is really a chemical base in many cases and and in talking to you you're talking about perfectionism as well which is brutal <laughs> brutal but you know i mean you can see little kids with the worry gene, what I call the worry gene. I mean, you know, they're they're two years old and they're worried about everything, you know. And and some of it's learned and some of it's not. And some of it, I think, is just chemical. You just got born with the worry gene. I don't believe that. But you find you don't think so. I don't believe it. I don't believe yeah. in the chemical, you know, explanation because mm -hmm. what they have found, you know, also is that in the womb you learn how to worry you have in the oh, womb wow. that you know awareness that changes how your you know epigenetics epigenetics basically means your genes get activated depending on what is released by your brain so if a child picks up that the mother releases all the cortisol and all the stress hormones then the child mm -hmm. feels unsafe and the child is more uh, susceptible to anxiety, that doesn't mean it has a gene inherited. It just means a gene is turned on because in the womb it already wasn't safe. So it's okay. really that the the whole idea of, well, sorry, we are trapped in the genetics and there's nothing we can do. I think that's unfortunately a disempowering message in itself because it that's makes us feel less than. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, good. Now, I kind of am glad to hear that. Because there's hope. <laughs> there's always hope, there's absolutely. Hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so because of your own personality, you were a physician and molecular biologist, and you 
came over into studying anxiety and and powerlessness because of your own life, your own self. Yes. Well, and because I realized that there are root causes that are never really addressed. And one of the root causes is not necessarily just what happened to me. But one of the root causes of my powerlessness and anxiety was that I had no clue who I was. You know, this is a this is a big one in, in my second book, The Empowerment Solution. I write all about the importance of us finding ourself because I identified myself first with a peacemaker, then with, you know, being a straight age student, then with being a doctor, then being a researcher. And I I never spend time to figure out, well, wait a second, how do you take what's you know, what's your desire? What are you good at? What do you believe in? And most of us don't do that. And you can see this even now with young people, the kids, they get told you have to have definitely five extracurricular activities, you have to already think about, you know, applying to colleges. So don't even get bored. Because if you get bored, you're lazy. And it's in that boredom. It's in that time of doing nothing where we discover ourselves. So kids are totally deprived of that. And if they don't, have anything to do, they play video games or on their phones, again, a complete distraction. So there is nothing really leading us inside. And if people talk about we are all so anxious in the world right now, well, that's one of the reasons because we are all outside of ourselves. We are not connected to ourselves. We don't find safety in ourselves. We don't find trust in ourselves. We don't find belief in ourselves, nothing. We are just basically meat suits walking through life being afraid of everything because we don't trust in ourselves anymore i'm a psychic so i'm always looking at people and their spirit and so many people now are what i call out of body and, yes. and their spirit is actually not in their body it's kind of drifting exactly. around out there and becoming everybody else <laughs> and i have an exercise for people to get in body and, and you know, it's so subtle. I keep saying to people, you're not going to feel anything. You can look backwards in six months and see things, but very subtle. But how do you do it? What is your, how do you, how do people get to know themselves? They have to understand that they don't know themselves first. That's what I wanted to say at the beginning where I found myself in a church and realizing I have no clue who I am. And I thought and hoped that God would talk to me and didn't happen, but a lot in life talked to me and got me really on a path. It was through meditation, it was through yoga that I kind of stumbled into, that I all of a sudden felt something that I hadn't felt before. It was almost like I felt the inner sense of gravity again. And from that, there were these moments of awakening where I just saw clearly, you know, I'm not my brain. There is something else much more wise and deep inside of me that I have to connect to. And that was the subconscious. And then from the subconscious, you can say there is the connection to the essence, the soul, the spirit, whatever you want to call it, which is again, not intellectual, rational, there is something, just something more palpable, deeper. And the, the key that I for myself and for my clients find in order for us to lose the sense of powerlessness and anxiety is to understand it comes from that deeper subconscious mind 
who ultimately just wants to protect us and who ultimately just wants to to bring us on our path. And so when we see, wow, there is just something deeper that actually has a good intention, but it's not really working anymore when I'm freaked out all day long, we can start to communicate with the subconscious. We can start to rewire the way it has been seeing us in the world and, and make real change happen. So that's a very, that, very powerful way. Is that what you call survival mode? The survival mode is what the subconscious has designed for us in order for us to be safe and be loved. So for me, the survival mode was being a perfectionist and being a helper and pleaser. For others, it's being, you know, all invisible, not being seen, just very small. For others, the survival mode is being the chameleon, like, you know, always blending in, just adjusting to the environment. In the book, break the radar. <laughs> exactly. Break the radar. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to come above the radar because then you're in the shooting range. <laughs> that's yeah. right. You know, no one... survival mode. <laughs> and being anxious is a symptom of the survival mode. You know, when you're anxious, let's say one survival mode is being the victim because you were victimized in the past. And so you're always anxious and you don't trust anything in anyone. And you always repeat in your mind that the past can just come back again. So there is no hope that feels very powerless. But for the subconscious, it says, well, it's better be safe and small and, you know, expecting the worst and getting disappointed, having your hopes up and only getting them dashed again. So it holds you in that small place because it doesn't believe that you have, you know, the, the ability and the strengths to change that. And this is where we have to do the work. We have to show our subconscious we are not these little kids anymore that need to be protected, but that we are reliable, trustworthy adults that can actually take care of life and become the creators of our reality. But that's where we are lacking because we are not doing this. We are not trustworthy. I wasn't trustworthy. My subconscious didn't trust me because I said a lot of things like, oh, yeah, I'm going to really now start taking care of myself. But I never did because work was more important or relationships were more important. I'm going to be healthier. But, you know, I don't really have time. So I eat bad food and drink and smoke cigarettes because it makes me feel better. All those things that I promised myself I didn't do. My subconscious says, well, sorry you're not a good driver, I'm going to stay in the driver's seat. And that's what most of us doing who are anxious. We are not showing that we are trustworthy. For whatever reasons, we don't necessarily know that this is a key to make the subconscious stop being this overprotected nanny that keeps us in these survival patterns. Um, I, everybody's empaths right now and loves being empaths. And I'm the person that says not good because again that out of body thing as you become everybody else you do things that take away the trust so let's say i use as an example i'm in a restaurant and i order brussels sprouts and as they're going to get the brussels sprouts i remember i hate brussels sprouts <laughs> why would i do this and now i'm gonna have to eat them because there are other people at the table, and I'm embarrassed to say, I hate Brussels sprouts, and I just ordered them. But most, and the worst thing about being an empath is I've picked up other people's ideas. 
and I'm actually almost ordering for somebody else, you know, who loves Brussels sprouts. But the the worst thing about being an empath is it erodes trust in yourself that why would I do that? And I no longer can trust myself because I've done something like that. And um, it just it just erodes the trust, unnerves you. You don't know who you are. You don't know. You can't trust anymore what you think. And if you can't trust that, you really can't trust anything. And I actually went into psychic work to be able to see through other people myself because the belief was you can't you can't know yourself. And I do find conversation with the subconscious to be almost impossible, frankly. I mean, I, I have sat with people who have told me that they don't drink while they drink. They are actually taking a sip of an alcoholic beverage and telling me they don't drink. And they're totally serious. <laughs> and, you know, people, and we all have it, will do things that we are completely unaware that we're doing and actually have a story that we don't do this. Do you well, understand? Well, that's a disconnect. What I mean? Totally. I mean, that's where the yeah. conscious and the subconscious are not communicating and not right. even collaborating. But you cannot blame the subconscious for that. It's our conscious mind basically lying to ourselves when the subconscious says, well, you know, <laughs> I guess drinking is what makes you feel calmer. And when you feel calmer, you're not freaking out. And then you're safer because when you're not safe and when you're not calm, something bad's going to happen. You know, all these things have a method to the madness. But why would you say that it's impossible to con communicate with the subconscious? I don't know how to, because I have seen so many people like that tell me that they don't drink while they drink, you know, that people are so, they can't see themselves. So they're so out of touch with who they really are. But and, they don't pay you know, attention um, I, I know, I know people who tell me all the time how neat they are and they're, that they're totally in control and have everything in them. And I go into their house and they're total slobs. <laughs> which is perfectly fine, but they don't know that. They actually think they're neat. And they're they're so far from that, you know, and think they're organized and, you know, 20 minutes to find the keys to leave. You know, it's it's so really we can't see ourselves. And I kind of believe that, that we, well, we can see ourselves. see ourselves. But I think we don't take the time to see ourselves. I don't think that we listen closely enough. Most people are very uncomfortable being by themselves and listening to their inner voice because it's not often a pretty voice. Sometimes it's negative thinking. Sometimes it's self-judgment. Sometimes it's worry. And so who wants to listen to that? And so that's where we get more into, like you said, being outside of ourselves, rather having the TV on than listening to our own inner radio station. Yeah, if you're not listening or paying attention to your thoughts, if you're not really want to be aware of your emotions, if you don't tune into your body, these are all three ways the subconscious communicates with us. Physical sensation, emotions, and the spontaneous thoughts. And then, of course, the dreams. If all of those things are not in our awareness, yeah, it's not the fault of the subconscious that there is no communication. It's our fault consciously to not tune in. 
So in listening to yourself, you know, don't you constantly have that survival mode, chatting away 24-7, do this, do that, oh my God, this is out of line, you know, that kind of thing. How do you get past that voice to the other voice, to the real voice? Well, I mean, that is a real voice too, this worry voice, but you have to learn to interpret it. You know, one thing that I can always uh, recommend to do first is just take note, just write down the thoughts that you have, you know, three times a day, four times a day, any negative thought that may be a thought that, you know, I hate myself, this is too difficult, oh, this will not work out. Just write it down. Don't even judge it. Don't do anything. Mm-hmm. Just pay attention to it. That's number one. Number two is think about what's behind it. You know, what are the real beliefs that make those thoughts even come to the surface? You know, the, the, the thoughts are not the problem. The sort of like the little tiny branches of a tree, the, the deeper stuff are the belief system we have. And the belief system is like, I'm not safe in the world, or I am you know, not able to fit in, or I don't belong here, I'm not lovable. So those are the deep belief systems. And then when you realize that's the belief that repeats itself over and over again, why do I have this belief? Why do I still hold on to that I'm not good enough, or that I only can be loved if I'm perfect? Then you can really look at what happened in my life. Where did this belief start? Who was telling me that or showing me that this is true? And then you're ready to work. Now, one thing that I find is super important. Don't think negative thoughts are negative thoughts that tell you the truth. Negative thoughts are at the core questions. It's like a little inner voice that says, am I not good enough? Will this not go right? Will these people reject me? Will this not work out? If you see it as the questions that just want someone to say something supportive, encouraging, something that, no, it's going to be okay, don't worry, then you can see it's like a child talking to a parent. The child saying, oh, is thunder really dangerous? Am I okay here when the lightning is flashing outside the window? And you as a parent would say, no, it's fine. We are safe here. We have, you know, uh, all the precautions, blah, blah, blah. You need to get into this caring, loving, supportive energy. And then you see this voice just wants that. It wants the conscious mind to give it some attention, some guidance, and some comfort. And if we are not learning to do this, the subconscious will always feel isolated, alone, and pretty much not trusting you because you're not warm, kind, and compassionate. You're a hostile, avoidant, and in denial. Um, (laughs) excuse me for laughing because many of us think that we are that person (laughs) oh i'm in the club you said the survival (laughs) mode you know really deep inside it's like oh my god i am that person i want to be so nice and and good and i'm such a schmuck (laughs) to ourselves mainly yeah yeah but um so, so you know, free-floating, what I call free-floating anxiety, where you can't pinpoint what you're nervous about. Like, you know you're safe. You know you're in your house. You know you have a job. You Everything, every place you look, you are safe. And yet, 
you're afraid and you're not safe. So you don't know why this is. I call it free floating anxiety. I mean, it's just floating around looking for something to attach to is really what it comes down to. Um, and then when it has nothing to attach to and you still have it, how do you address that? By not really addressing to turn down the anxiety, but to turn up the sense of safety, the sense of peace. You know, we often do this wrong. I did it wrong. All I focused on is how can I get rid of the anxiety versus like, how can I actually strengthen my sense of safety, my sense of trust, my sense of self. Now, free floating anxiety is also something that I don't believe in. I think it's another way for us to just tell ourselves, oh, the anxiety, it's always going to be there. It's always going to attack us. No, it talks to us. I know my free floating anxiety had usually some thought that I was completely ignoring, some focus that I was just totally oblivious about. So what I would suggest is that you just simply write down or say, I am anxious. Okay, you start with that because that's a go-to thing. But then you pinpoint it more down. So am I nervous? Am I worried? Am I doubtful? Am I, you know, anticipating? Am I, you know, feeling this is an energy that's more behind or more in front? You can really hone down more specifically what the emotion is. Don't just generalize it. Because if we say, I am hungry, well, that can mean anything. So just, you know, get a piece of bread and that. No, usually it's like, oh, I really would love to have, you know, a cheese or I would love to have a banana or that's much more specific. That's listening to what the body really wants. That's not just generalizing hunger is hunger. And so you just give it something utilitarian. It's the same thing with anxiety. Be more specific. And when you then know, oh, I'm worried. And then you ask yourself what I'm worried about. Or you're saying like, you know, I regret. Oh, wow. Regret. What do I regret? Ah, yeah. Yesterday, I remember I, I said to my mom, I won't help her in the garden. And then she was a little upset and I regret it and I feel bad. And that makes me still anxious. I mean, you, you can track back where the anxiety is not an, you know, useless energy. It's just sometimes a little subtle and we have to pay a little bit more attention. So so when feeling it, actually sit down and, and investigate it. And you be know, with just, it. Yes. Yeah. Don't, don't try and avoid it. Investigate it. You know what? With that, I'm going to take a break right now and then we'll come back and take a look at the avoidance. And, you know, people pleasers and all of that <laughs> that got us here. <laughs> okay, we'll be right back. One thing's for certain, life is uncertain. Do you navigate the unknowns? Visit aviewthroughtheveil.com to sign up for psychic readings and classes with Barb Crowley. You can schedule one-to-one -one sessions with Barb for personal and relationship counseling, pet communication, mediumship, career and business direction, or sign up for one of her classes. Everyone has answers through the metaphysical plane, but they need help to access them. Get the help you need today. Visit aviewthroughtheveil.com. You are listening to Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil with Barb Crowley. To reach the live show, please call into 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. 
You may also send an email to aviewthroughtheveil at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Hi, and we're back with Dr. Friedman Schaub, and we're talking about anxiety and fear, which is so relevant in the world right now. And uh, one of the things that we're going to talk about, which he's mentioned before, is the invisibility, how we want to stay small and hidden. And let me have you take that. And then then I want to go into my favorite, procrastination. <laughs> so let's start maybe with the invisibility. Well, you know, invisibility is, is such a shame because when we decide to not be seen, Basically, we're saying either all of us is not supposed to be here, or it's not safe to be here, or parts of us are not supposed to be seen. You know, some people are just really not wanting to leave the house because it's really scary out there. Some people just don't want to have any relationships, so they do their job, but they keep everyone at arm's length, and they always dress in very unobtrusive colors and, and just don't hope for more feels much safer to be this little shrinking comfort zone. And some people say, you know, no, I am out there. I'm social. I am successful. I'm, But they never dare to be seen as vulnerable. They never dare to show their feelings or their weaknesses. So they are also invisible. And the problem is that we are often invisible to ourselves because we don't really see who we are. And that is all survival modes. This is all just trying to keep us in a place that feels safe rather than a place that is our God-given right, which is to expand, to evolve, to grow, to thrive, to make a contribution. So we really have to see whenever we are stuck in these comfort zones, that ultimately we are holding ourselves back. We are denying ourselves our right to make an impact. And so we have to also find a way to understand that we are blocking ourselves. You know, you can only be invisible when you tell yourself that you're unsafe and you only can feel unsafe when you feel that safety comes from avoiding danger and not from within. So you're not even looking inside. What do am I really, what can I rely on? Maybe I'm really great in regards to resilience, or I'm very creative, or I'm very intuitive, or I'm someone who really is able to see, you know, the beauty in everything and, you know, is connected to nature. And you can find so many gifts inside of you that make you feel safe. You may not be able to control everyone around you, but you can feel that there is something you can always go back to that gives you a sane, a sense of being at home and feeling safe. And in the end, it doesn't really matter. In the book, I'm writing about these five principles to, to living out in the open. And one of the principles is that reality is relative. And that means basically whatever we see is our personal version of reality. We all have our filters. We all have our ideas. So if someone says, oh, I don't like this person, this person is too old, too fat, too white, too black, too whatever. It says everything about them because it's their distorted filter system that makes them reject someone. And so when we are want to avoid these people, basically we are taking their opinion, which is all about them, as a reflection ourselves. 
But when we know everyone sees only what they can see through their filters, so you never see the truth about anyone, all you see is only this kind of version of your own system, then you don't have to take anything personally anymore. You're free. You can see, yeah, maybe this person doesn't like me, but that's their system. That's their field. Maybe I remind them of their brother who always tortured them or of their uncle who was always nasty to them. So that's not me. That's just a reminder. I cannot change that. And that is one way to feel safe, that you have to make up your own mind about yourself. No one can make you feel safe and no one can tell you who you are. That's your path and your obligation to do. Now, if you don't like them, do you have to investigate that as well, your own filter? Well, absolutely. And you have to think about that you don't like them because it's on you. You have something that you associate with them. You have something that you feel is wrong with them, which is probably not the case. Or you are highlighting something and you're ignoring many other things. And that's uh, another one of those five principles that the best way for us to feel safe is to have compassion. Compassion for everyone, including ourselves. So if you see someone, oh, they are very aggressive, or they have a total different opinion, or they are this and that, shield yourself with compassion and know they are on their journey. This is not anything that's on my business. It's not something that I have to judge, criticize. And this is not something I need to feel, you know, negative or, or defensive about. I have compassion because this is who they are on their journey. And this is how I see them. And I cannot take responsibility for this, but I also cannot go into negativity about this. And I think Compassion is such a powerful energy. You know, my father was always angry or often angry and aggressive, and we were scared of him and walking on eggshells. And it took me until my, you know, 30s to realize he has PTSD from, you know, World War II and everything that happened, or, you know, losing his father early, losing his little sister to polio, having to be in the war, having to go to a prisoner of war camp, almost dying, having to flee the camp. I mean, there was so much stuff that happened in his young life. Yeah. He had PTSD and he, his, his anxiety came out as controlling and angry and not trusting. And when I saw him through the lens of compassion, I was never afraid of him anymore. I just saw him and I loved him because I could see like, well, I'm so sorry. There is something inside of him right now really triggered because he never really worked on himself. He never really overcame that pain. And that pain was what I could focus on, not the anger. And I could have compassion for this pain. And I think we can do a lot with this compassion, even for the people we disagree the most with. We can still have compassion for that pain. Now, if he was willing to. Could you have helped him with PTSD? I mean, if he would have been willing to get help, yeah, so, yeah pretend I would have willing. loved to help him, but I'm not sure that <laughs> yeah. he, he would have wanted to have help from his son. So maybe I would have to <laughs> give him a referral. Yeah, yeah. But yes, definitely. PTSD is not something that we are, again, stuck in or it's a it's a scar that's going to always ache. No, it's it's ultimately something that also just says you haven't resolved that 
you know, when we, again, looking from the perspective of the subconscious, a lot of the trauma that comes up over and over again is not the trauma that is the problem. You know, trauma is a big word these days. It's really the unresolved questions at the core of the trauma that are the issue. Why did this happen? Could I have prevented this from happening? Does this say anything about me? Is this something that I have to blame myself? Is this something that repeats itself? These are all trauma questions that we need to resolve. And once we resolve them, we are no longer the victim of the trauma. We are no longer stuck in PTSD, but we cannot just do it intellectually. We have to, again, do it also emotionally because it's the emotions that are the language of the subconscious, not the thoughts. Um, I always believe that women, females all over the world carry a fear that they're born with. They're born vulnerable because of the lack of strength, you know, that they can be um, they're strained. Just not having half the population is stronger than them. The men are physically, stronger than women. That physically, yeah. Oh no, emotionally, I think women are whoa, so much stronger. <laughs> but physically, and they're born with that vulnerability. And I think it's in women all the time. But it's true too. You know, I mean, a woman can be overwhelmed by a stronger person, and half the population is stronger. So they so women are always vulnerable to um not being able to take care of themselves in those situations. That to me is real. It just is. And I don't care how much you bulk up, half the population stronger. How do you get past a fear like that, that I think is essentially true? Well, and feel safe, you know? It's an interesting thing because the way you put it is basically saying half the population are potentially hurting the other half of the population just because they are stronger. So not just that they're doing it. It's the it's the idea that they can. In other words, a lot of our fear is really that we can't take care of ourselves. We can't protect. But that's ourselves. a very strong limiting belief. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't dispute that this may be true for a lot of women. I'm just saying this is also a, it's a, like saying, you know, all of us 100% going to die. So do we have that's going to be always stronger than us? So does it mean we have to always live in the fear of dying? Or do we have to live in the joy of living? And so if we are living always in fear, are we always basically trying to prevent something like pain? But by trying to prevent it, we are causing actually more pain because we are living in a trauma that may never happen. We are living in a possibility that actually prevents us from looking at other possibilities, possibilities of trust, possibilities of you know, self-expression, uh, possibility of realizing that no, that the way that the world change is for women to see that they are stronger. Physical strength is completely overrated. Physical strength is yes, you can kill someone, 
but you're not leading others with physical strengths. I mean, we are seeing it right now in the world. They are still the ones that are looking for the strong man that leads the world and all this bullshit. And then we are looking another one, which is about we can only make this world livable and healing it together. We cannot do this against each other. We are all in the same boat. We are all dealing with the same nature, with the same problems. And if we are not seeing each other as as ultimately fellow travelers, fellow stewards of these earths that have a responsibility to keep it well for our children and the children after us, we definitely will be erased from the planet. And so there is a shift that needs to happen. And that shift needs to not look at weapons or muscle strengths or loud voices or egos as that's what's the dominant force in the world. What's the dominant force in the world is wisdom. It's that it's the love. It's the, the connection. It's this that what I think, you know, compassion does this knowing that I can see that behind your facade of anger is fear or is pain. That is real power. I have seen, I don't know, hundreds of my clients that have been raped, that have been abused, that I, but they have a resilience inside of them that even though physically they were weaker, especially if it happened to them as children, they were still the stronger ones because they did not give up on love. They did not give up on having a partner. They did not give up unknowing that what happened to them didn't define them, but that they actually defined by preserving the light inside of them, preserving the goodness inside of them. So they walk through life with their heads up high, not in fear, oh, when it's going to happen again, but much more in the knowing, no matter what happened to me, I know myself, maybe physically I can be broken, but my light can never be extinguished. My belief in goodness can never be erased. Those are the people I admire. The reason I brought that up is a friend of mine, a guy, we were taking a walk last night and he said, you know, let's go walk in the park. And every cell in my being said, let's not, <laughs> let's not. Again, it was a difference in physical vulnerability. Mm. And that's really why I brought it up. Cause I, I was, I, when I felt it, it was like, oh, my God, you know, um, why is this? Why does he have no fear at all? And I have fear. I don't feel safe to walk in a park at night, you know, mm -hmm. and that's when I realized because I don't have the physical strength to protect myself. He does. Mm -hmm. He does. And that's yeah. really why I brought it up. It was I, I it was such an awareness, you know, such a in my face thing. But and it's an awareness of a belief. It's not necessarily an awareness of that if you would have been in the park, something bad would happen. I mean, that right. is the avoidance. You know, I'm not mm -hmm. saying you should go, you know, with blind eyes into these situations that can potentially harm us, you know, three o'clock in the worst neighborhood. No, probably not. But not we cannot <laughs> avoid anything yeah. and everything just because we tell ourselves there is a possibility that I may be physically not as strong because when you're a psychic, you, you probably also have a high belief in a higher power. And, and I think the mm -hmm. trust needs to go beyond the trust in our muscle power, in our physical strength. We have to believe also that 
there will be an, I mean, I believe strongly in intuition and I believe the intuition guides us and they can, the intuition can tell us if something is right or not. I also believe that there is a higher power, whether you call it the universe, gods, guardian angels, whatever you want to call it, they're also looking out for us. I just believe there is so much more to trust in than just physical strengths. And, and I think that maybe is a belief just to also change that you're safe no matter what, and that it doesn't have to be that you turn into a man in order to feel safe or like this is the fear where a lot of people buy guns because they believe the gun makes them feel safe. And then we see where that leads to innocent people get killed because we rather shoot them than asking, what do you want? Can I help you? And that is not really a good thing in the world right now. Yeah, definitely not with the guns thing, especially here. You know, it's, it's, it is. But it's the same limiting belief, you know, the belief of, oh, the bad people have guns. So I have to have better guns, more guns, faster guns. And so then we put this trust into the gun and we are not seeing the gun is a murder weapon. We are killing ourselves to protect ourselves. Maybe some people think that's a good idea, but in the end, I think taking a person's life is a cardinal sin, no matter what we want to see it. And we have to just step a little bit back. Are we doing this too much, this fear and the beliefs around not being safe? And we are not really working on, maybe I need just to learn to trust again. Maybe I need to just to learn to believe. Choose in, trust. Yes, exactly. Choose trust and not just choose safety. Mm-hmm. Um. And that you have steps to get to that point of choosing trust. <laughs> right. You can definitely read both books. <laughs> They're going to help you to find those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, in avoidance, um, which we all do a lot of, you know, and you can tell I do it, um, is procrastination. Mm. Yes. Now I'm putting it with avoidance, is it not? Or you want to tell? Oh, me totally. It's absolutely yes. It's a third avoidance pattern, definitely, and it's a survival pattern because basically we procrastinate anything that makes us feel uncomfortable, anything that we may be failing in in the future, anything that potentially could put us out there, and then people would judge it. You know, I know so many people that are great in starting something. Oh, I have a fabulous idea. And then they gung ho. And right before they're finished, they stop. They procrastinate. Oh, I need to have a little bit more time. Oh, I need to do a little more research because they're afraid to get this, whatever they did, out into the world. And then people can have their opinion about it. And so they procrastinate finishing. And so the problem with procrastination is not only that we don't get things done or that we are not following through with our obligations. The problem is that it's eroding our trust in ourselves because we are lying to ourselves. Oh, like you said, with these people that are drinking and saying they don't, it's the same no, people the saying, oh, thing. tomorrow I'm going to go to the gym and then they don't. Oh, tomorrow mm -hmm. I'm going to clean up the house and then they don't. And if you would hear this from somebody else, oh, tomorrow I'm going to come and help you and the person doesn't show up. Well, after the third time, you just erase the number out of your phone because you just don't believe that person anymore. Well, we do this as procrastinators all the time. And so how can we 
believe that our subconscious finds us trustworthy when we constantly lie to ourselves, when we constantly let ourselves down. So it's a very self-destructive way. So stopping procrastination is not just about paying the bills or cleaning up the garage or getting in shape. Stopping procrastination is about building your trust in yourself again. And as you said, you can only be inside of yourself if you actually trust yourself. And if you don't trust yourself, it's much more comfortable to lean onto somebody or something else than to lean on yourself. So what are the steps to stop procrastination? <laughs> what kind well, of steps do you take? There are many of those take? described, but one of the steps I think that's really important is that you are not stopping procrastination with everything at once. You start with one thing. You look at the one thing that you feel, I really find that's pretty easy. I can get momentum, but it's all a pretty, it's also a pretty big deal for me to do it. Like, you know, many people I tell, clean up your bedroom because the bedroom is full of clothes or boxes and something, and they have been procrastinating around it forever. And they just get that done. Tell yourself with a certain amount of time, you, let's say in a week, you're going to have it cleaned up. Now, the benefit is you sleep better. Your subconscious is a place to rest. There's not this distraction. To make it happen is that you are visualizing what happens if you don't. So you literally see yourself as a fork in the road. Today, I'm going to tell myself I'm going to do it by the end of the week. How will I feel when I've done it? Oh, I'm going to have just, you know, real great pride on my chest. I feel so good. It looks so wonderful. How will I feel when I've not done it? I'm going to feel like beaten down, defeated, ashamed, still not. And if you want to add to it a little bit of energy, tell the people that you care about that you're going to do it. Make them see you as, oh, yeah, she said it, and make them hold you accountable because you don't want to let them down, or at least most people don't want to let other people down. It's much easier to let themselves down. So there are these kind of simple steps for you to say, I'm going to do it. And research has shown if we say out loud, oh, I'm going to, you know, vote this year, or yes, I'm going to clean out the room, there is a 50% higher chance that you're going to do it for two reasons. One is because of the other people, but the other one is that you're already visualizing in your head as you're saying it, that you do it. And when we visualize something that we're doing, it's somehow the subconscious sees it as an order, as like, okay, this is a direction. And it's easier for the subconscious to follow through. But if you're a chronic procrastinator and you say you're going to do it, inside of you, you already know, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to tell myself I'm going to do it. <laughs> so you're already happening. visualizing <laughs> yeah. it's never going to be done. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you actually vis visualize or feel the how it would be if it's done. Both, yes. And that's where you go. That's so powerful. That is something, this is the language of the subconscious, you know, coming back to the communication with the subconscious, you visualize something, you feel the feeling about it, you have maybe a nice little inner commentary about it, maybe you can smell the fresh scent in the room when it's about cleaning up, all those things make the subconscious feel like, 
all right, now I know where we are going. And that it's the same thing if you would visualize, I don't know, visiting the south of France and you would, you know, smell the lavender and you see the blue sky and you would, you know, zip a little bit of a rosé. Your subconscious would think, oh, we are there, we are there. And then you come back and say, no, I'm still in Denver, but now I really want to go. And it's much more likely to take action because your subconscious knows exactly what you want and not just what you don't want. Will the subconscious at that point take the steps or do you still have to actively because your subconscious for all of your life has been working one way? Do you still have to actively then take the steps? It's a collaboration. So what you want is to definitely decide the steps. What you want is to let the subconscious stop resisting the steps and actually looking forward to taking the steps. And then as a third place, you have to say thank you. You have to give yourself a pat on the back. You have to say, wow, I did such a good job because that is the nourishment. This is a piece of chocolate for the subconscious. It needs to know it's on the right track. And that's what we often don't do. We Let's say you stop procrastinating or you want to stop. So you clean up one room and you're realizing there's still the living room, the kitchen and the garage. And then you feel defeated, deflated because you're not savoring the success. You're only looking at what's still not done. And the subconscious, oh my God, yes, we are setting ourselves up for failure. And all the momentum is gone. So toot your own horn to yourself. And that's that important to actually congratulate yourself for what you have done. Very, because the subconscious is not only a protector, the subconscious is also a pleaser. It likes to please us. It likes to make us happy, but only if it believes that we are safe. So when it starts to trust our conscious decision, it says, okay, okay, okay. Let's, it's like a little truffle dog then, you know, it looks for the truffle, it looks for the good stuff if it trusts that we can our can keep ourselves safe it's really it's so interesting when you make that that switch when it flips from bodyguarding you to helping you to have the most fulfilled life you have so much more energy so much more creativity so much more intuition at your disposal because it's no longer used to protect you so that's where we can really thrive once we're getting out of the survival mode. And and the survival mode, switching out of that is really looking straight at, what am I afraid of? Where's this coming that's from? That's a very important step. And then also, what is really underneath that? What beliefs, what traumas, what emotional baggage, what is really at the core of it? And then, this is why I wrote the second book, it's not just that, but it's also say, how do I act because of it? See, when we are, let's say, for example, you would say, okay, I'm going to work on my belief of not feeling safe. I'm going to learn to trust. I'm going to learn to, you know, have more positive self-talk, but then I still don't go in the park. And then I still mm -hmm. don't, you know, so you are on the one hand, having all these, you know, inner things change, but your external behavior, your patterns are still the same. It's confusing. And the subconscious says, well, she's still living apparently as if there is a reason to be afraid. And then you go right back into the anxiety and this old belief because yeah. you're 
you know, it needs to be congruent. And if you're not congruent, the subconscious goes more back to keeping you safe than to making you happy. So that's where it's so important to not just look at the feelings and the thoughts and the beliefs, but also at the behavior. Behavior is ultimately what the subconscious sees the most as the evidence whether we are trustworthy as conscious adults or not. How important is it to get to the core? Where did this come from? Is that important or is it more important to just go forward? No, it is important. Can you go forward without knowing the core? I mean, it's important from the perspective of subconscious. It's like the old owner's manual. You know, let's say I had in my owner's manual needing to achieve in order to be worthy and to get love. And that came from, you know, some events in the past. So I needed to go back to these events in the past and really basically clear these events and make sure that the subconscious knows, no, this was not your fault. This was your parents' anxiety about, you know, not having a successful son. This was your parents' own belief system that you just have taken on. You don't have to carry their belief system of only if you're perfect, you are lovable. You can change your belief system. But it was neutralizing the past in that way is really helpful because then you know, okay, now I got all this confusion out of the way. Now I can write a new owner's manual. And my belief is I need to find self-love and self-worth based on who I am and not on what I do. I need to, first of all, you know, accept myself for everything, my faults, my strengths, my shortcomings and then have this drive to continue to grow and evolve. And only then I gonna feel like, yeah, I am lovable for who I am, but I'm also also you know, always kind of eager to discover more what's possible for me. I'm never gonna get stuck in, you know, saying like, oh, I'm perfect now, that's great, because everyone else finds me perfect. No, it doesn't matter what other people think. There's always inside of us, like the universe that expands. We continue to expand and there's so much more to discover with each and every one. Mm. On that note, like, we have to stop. And I, there are so what? many more questions I have, <laughs> but we've got to stop. <laughs> and I want you to tell everybody where they can get hold of you and get hold of your books and whatever else you have coming up. Well, you can find me on YouTube, uh, on my uh, Dr. Friedman Chaub channel, where there are about 500 videos. And so there are a lot of things that will continue the conversation about powerlessness and uh, anxiety and survival modes and how to get out of those. Uh, my website is drfriedman.com. It's D-R-F-R-I-E-D-E-M-A-2-N.com. I do individual breakthrough programs, one-on-one -on -one sessions. I also have a video seminar that's coming back up very soon from now. You have a lot of tools that you can get for free. On the side, you have also links to the books, which can be found in Amazon, Barnes & Noble, bookstores, wherever. And uh, yeah. Browse around. There's definitely a lot for you to already and get inspired. You're definitely no longer invisible. <laughs> You've made yourself visible, which we appreciate. Thanks yes, so much thank for being you. on the show. I've really enjoyed it. It's a thank great subject so and it's so needed right now. 
Thank yes. you. Thank you. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for joining us for Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil. Please tune in for another edition with your host, Barb Crowley, next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Enjoy your upcoming weekend.